This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along, April 14th, 2023. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. Yes, I did it. 10 p.m. in Kiev, <laughs> Kiev, whatever, uh, and Moscow are now in the same time zone, if not the same country. 10.30 p.m. in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm very Sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of sorry. 7 a.m. in Auckland. And a far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. If you're listening in the Yaroslavl Oblast of the Russian Federation today, April 14th is the day of Mologa commemorating the ancient city of Mologa that sat at the confluence of the Volga and Mologa rivers for a millennium, but which Stalin decreed in 1935 had to be submerged in order to build the Rybinsk hydroelectric dam and reservoir. The inhabitants were told to leave their homes. 300 refused to do so and so were drowned. On this day each year, former residents sail out to where the town used to stand to see if they can glimpse their uh, former homes. And priests of the Russian Orthodox Church hold divine service, bobbing around in boats in front of the belfries of their churches, which are still visible above the surface, or at least uh, their crosses are with the Russian uh, Orthodox triple horizontal beams that any Orthodox listeners will be familiar with. So if you're listening in the environs of what used to be Mologa, we hope 
the day went well. It's a metaver for something. I know that. Uh, next week, this coming week, my new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is officially published. So if you pre-ordered it from Amazon, I think they start shipping them on Tuesday. If you've ordered the Kindle or the Nook or some other digital version, they also start shipping them on Tuesday. So the click of the button and it's in your inbox. We're already on our second printing, which is nice. I don't know how many customers we have in Russia's Yaroslavl Oblast, but if you're in the Commonwealth, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender is uh, highly topical and a laugh and a half on the eve of the king's coronation. Um, it's funnier than how the real coronation's shaping up to be, I think. And even if you're in the wider West, if you're in America or Europe, I think it speaks to you too. But let me know what you think. I could be all wet on that. The Prisoner of Windsor is out on Tuesday. I'm beavering away. Uh, <laughs> signing personally autograph. If you've ordered it from the Sign Online bookstore, um, I've been beavering away signing all the personally autographed copies and we're, we're shipping those out. As I mentioned, we're, we're on our second printing already, which is a nice problem to have, but it does mean that you, uh, you have to keep the books in stock. And uh, so yesterday, for example, we were supposed to be getting a big shipment from FedEx, which you, I believe is the of all American multinationals, is the fifth biggest employer worldwide, FedEx, FedEx. And the uh, books didn't come yesterday, and I was kind of wondering why. I don't usually take an interest in these things, but I'm, you know, trying to, I'm physically uh, pacing myself to sign all the books, get them out. Uh, and I was told that the reason they didn't come yesterday, they weren't delivered, uh, is because not enough drivers showed up to work at whichever FedEx place they were departing from. And it's kind of odd to me that I would have, I would just about have accepted it if uh, if they were coming via mom and pop haulage of Dead Moose Junction. But it seems kind of odd that FedEx... Uh, whose slogan, if I recall correctly, uh, I should probably actually just uh, look this up because uh, I could uh, get the uh, get the actual slogan. Uh, what was the slogan that it used to be? It was something about it being abs when it absolutely. Ah, here it is. When it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Yeah, well. These bloody books did have to be absolutely positively there overnight. And FedEx can no longer reliably perform. Oh, not enough drivers turned up for work. So I was like a bit annoyed about that. I'm just giving you, <laughs> I'll get to your questions. I'm just like uh, getting a couple of things off my chest because I'm annoyed at the way nothing works anymore. You know, when they said when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight... Um, then uh, they they were able to live up to that slogan. Now they can't. Anyway, so this morning, I was uh, just over the Quebec border, had a little business to do over there, and also I was desirous of the opportunity to whinge in French, so I was moaning about this stupid situation with FedEx, and I'm doing my uh, nothing works anymore thing, and I'm tootling back, a little rural border post, you know, just a little bit of two-lane blacktop in the middle of the woods, but where uh, since 
the American side has made everything rather more complicated than it needs to be. And there's a little gate that's supposed to open automatically. And then you so you go past the Canadian thing. The little gate opens automatically and you come to the American post. And instead, for the first time ever, there was traffic backed up there at the little gate. And so we sit there and we sit there and we sit there. And uh, no one likes to toot the horn and go, hey, come on, pal, snap it up, because then the bureaucrats will take it out on you and uh, do intimate cavity searches and all the rest if you do that. So everyone's being very craven and prostate uh, because they don't want American bureaucrats in their uh, – did I say prostate? Yeah, because they don't want American bureaucrats in their prostate. That's why they're being prostrate. And eventually the Canadian guy wanders over because the traffic's backing up now on the Canadian side. And he goes, oh, he goes, uh, the Yanks have installed a new barrier and it doesn't uh, it doesn't recognize motor bikes and open automatically. And at that point, we realized there was a, the front of the line. It was a motorcycle. So. <laughs> the Canadian guy uh, tells the motorcycle to come round the fence, and then he goes over to tell the American border guard that we're all backed up and can he open the gate. So the guy opens the gate, and we all proceed through. And when it comes to me, the guy goes, uh, he, he he says, what time did you come through? How long have you been in? How many days have you been in Canada? I said, two and a half hours. I came through this border post at, you know, whatever it was, nine o'clock in the morning. And he goes... <laughs> What were you doing in Canada for two and a half hours? And I say, well, uh, just to be uh, pedantic about it, I wasn't actually in Canada for two and a half hours. I was in Canada for an hour and three quarters, and I've been sitting in no man's land for three quarters of an hour waiting for you to open your gate. So, of course, he doesn't like that answer, and... Um, he would have, uh, you know, shipped me to Gitmo if he could have come up with a pretext, but he couldn't. So he go, eventually he goes, OK, you're free to go. And uh, he, uh, at that point, the second gate is supposed to open automatically and you proceed into America. But he goes, oh, he goes, uh, the motorcyclist has, uh, has wrecked this gate, <laughs> the second gate. So the guy has to, I'm just giving you a tip for any of you ISIS guys or Al-Qaeda fellas out there. If you want to know how to snarl up an American border post and, uh, and, and uh, do whatever you will with it. So at that point, he actually has to go out and physically lift up the gate high enough. It's not easy to do in order for my vehicle to pass through. So again, you might want to get one of those low-slung little uh, foreign sports cars or whatever that can slip under the gate because it's unlikely to be. So I'm just in a cranky mood today about nothing working. It's uh, an adventure. And I, you know, if I suppose I want to tie it beyond my own personal experience, I'm concerned about this um, because I see things like the president of Brazil giving a speech in Shanghai and demanding to know why it is that international transactions have to be done in American dollars. They're up to something. These are people who would not be automatic allies of the Chinese Communist Party, whatever you think of them, Brazil, India, uh, South Africa, 
But uh, unfortunately, they seem to have concluded that uh, they would like the dollar's status to be brought to an end. As I said, these are not people anyone's ever thought of as America's enemies, Brazil, India, South Africa. But they uh, are itching to be rid of the dollar. And at that point, none of the gates, the many gates in America, are going to be working. I'm just putting that out there just as a thought. But as I said, this show is all about you. Uh, anyone can listen to it. And uh, any one of the eight billion people around the planet, we think at least a billion and a half of you are listening right now. Uh, you only have to be a Mark Sign Club member to ask a question. So if you don't want to ask a question, you don't need to join the club. But we're happy to have you if you do. Let us get to your questions. Walt Trimmer says, why did Biden go to Northern Ireland, given the current conflicts there? Why did Britain allow him to go to Northern Ireland? Why are the Irish so enthused about Hunter Biden? Do you think it is possible that Biden thinks it is mission accomplished on destroying America and wants to move on to emerald pastures? Did the PM's dog smell something evil? Is extradition allowed from Ireland back to the US? That's a lot of questions. I've, there's so many questions, I've forgotten what the first three were. Uh, and there isn't really conflict there. There's don't And don't forget, the official position is that because of the post-Brexit Northern Ireland protocol and now the Windsor framework, is that there shall be no conflict, that the uh, European Commission has stepped in and imposed this uh, Windsor framework and Northern Ireland protocol, and now peace shall reign across the Emerald Isle. Uh, so that's why Biden had to go there to show that the European Commission, between them, between Washington and Brussels, uh, they had brought peace to Ireland. That's what it's about. He couldn't have not gone there. I will say that I did think it was Biden at his best. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he's uh, a brain-dead husk of a moth-eaten sock puppet, and we don't know who's waggling him up and down all the time. But the old Biden, the flash of the old Biden, the corn pop Biden, the one about how uh, all the five star generals told him it wasn't safe to go to Afghanistan and personally pin the medal on whoever it was, all that kind of uh, the the inspired, deranged Biden. Uh, I thought that was an absolutely brilliant joke. He was with one of his cousins, who's a rugby player. And he confused uh, the rugby team, very famous rugby team, but not in America, the New Zealand All Blacks. People in America, in my experience, are always very surprised to find that New Zealand's rugby team is called the All Blacks. They always say, what, what do all of them have to be black? Because even by American affirmative action standards, that would seem a bit extreme. So Biden confuses the All Blacks with the black and tans, who were <laughs> the uh, special constables recruited from uh, Great War veterans a century ago, a little over a century ago, uh, to support the Royal Irish Constabulary when the lads were getting a little restive. 
uh, in uh, you've had this on the hundred years ago show where we sort of went step by step through the process that led to the uh, inauguration of the Irish Free State uh, a century ago. But anyway, the black and tans, I think it's, I'm just putting it at its mildest here, are not terribly popular among Irish Republicans, which Biden is supposed to be. He's in favor of United Ireland, and he uh, does not want any part of Ireland remaining within the United Kingdom. He's always been like that. He met with Jerry Adams and other prominent IRA figures uh, all through his life uh, up to a couple of years ago. Anyway, uh, that joke, but the joke confusing the New Zealand All Blacks. So his cousin is a rugby player, and he says, "Oh, you should have seen him against the Black and Tans." <laughs> That's a brilliant. You could not. You look at the lame jokes on what are supposed to be American comedy shows. These awful, god awful late night shows where they've got thirty-seven writers writing gags, and none of them can come up with a joke that's half as funny as Biden in Ireland confusing the New Zealand All Blacks with the Black and Tans. <laughs> that is just, I salute him in his derangement. Whatever brain cells are still active in there to come up with that's better than anything you'll hear on these crappy American comedy shows, uh, like uh, whatever it's meant to be, The Tonight Show. What's the thing that... Uh the, the, the guy, uh, I can't even remember his uh, name. All these unfunny late night hosts. That's better than anything any of them would have come up with. Um, so when you say, why did Britain allow him to go to Northern Ireland? Uh, because they're on the, the same side. Rishi Sunak, this is basically what he's there for is to signal the death of Brexit. Um, he loves uh, the European Union. He gave a speech in Brussels as vice president and said Brussels can state just as great a claim as Washington to be the leader of the free world. And actually, uh, thanks to him uh, in Washington, that's pretty much true. Um, so I, uh, I, I don't... Uh, all these players whether you're talking about Varadkar in Dublin or Sunak in London or the European uh, uh, Cruella von der Leyen in uh, Brussels all and Biden, they're all on the same side. Uh, so it's not about allowing. Uh, and then actually when you say, why are the Irish so enthused about Hunter? Uh, did you see Joe Biden with that kid? And the kid asks, what are the keys to success? And Biden mumbles something about COVID. And then uh, Hunter steps in to sort of clarify what the question means. And Biden goes off into this rhapsodic, rambling anecdote uh, about the Americans with disability. He's talking to a nine-year-old kid or whatever. <laughs> he starts going off about the Americans with Disabilities Act in the 1980s and how Jesse Helms wasn't in favor of it. And so he went to see Bob Dole and said, what's up with Jesse? And this kid is thinking, <laughs> I just like, you know, some little uh, Chinese cracker motto that uh, you I could I could tell to the other kids about meeting with. He can't do it. He can't do it. Chris Davis says, Mark, Biden is the gift that keeps on giving. So I thought I'd try another tack, albeit a consequence 
of his brand of leadership of the free world. Macron was rightly vilified for shilling up to Xi Jinping, but was he merely toady grandstanding to deflect from his domestic strife, lame duck presidency, or looking beyond the last puff of the NATO cigar to repositioning France in the fast-emerging multipolar world order. I'm not sure how multipolar it's going to be, because BRICS, the BRICS guys are basically just agreeing to uh, attach themselves to China uh, to gang up with accelerating the end of the American moment. And Macron, don't forget, culturally, we, we talked about this with Anne-Elizabeth Mutet on the Mark Stein show earlier this week, that uh, the French have a long-standing antipathy to the two centuries of dominance by what they call les Anglo-Saxons since the Battle of Trafalgar. And they're keen for that to come to an end, even if it's Chinese communists who bring it to an end. And that's simply just a sort of... And I know we've had people... There were people in... There have been people in the comments who say, well, wait a, wait a minute, we shed our blood uh, for France uh, in the D-Day invasion and uh, the end of the Second World War. And that's, you know, that's an argument you can make, but it's not how the French see it. And if you were to actually put it... If you were to do the thing you hear on you know, uh, certain American talk radio shows, if it weren't for us, you'd be speaking German. Uh, they'd respond, well, if it weren't for us, you'd be speaking English. We, we're the ones who helped you throw off the British crown. We were your original allies, uh, which is true. And then they further helped. Why do you think Napoleon gave America such a good deal on the Louisiana Purchase? Because it was a way of giving a black eye to England. Uh, and it was a way he, he Napoleon, again, he wasn't an idiot, but he thought those 13 colonies holed up in the American Northeast were just a piffling irrelevance. And the way to turn them into a world power was to actually uh, do the deal on on the Louisiana Purchase. Um, so all that sort of if it weren't for us, you'd be speaking German thing that can all go both that can all go both ways, and whichever way you incline to, it's not how either side thinks about it. You know, people are in the end. People have got to be grown up about this. This is why I'm beginning to despair about the parochialism of uh, some uh, American talk shows on this. You know, the the grown up line is uh, Lord Palmerston's when he was asked about uh, eternal. Uh, allies or something like that. And he responded, England has no eternal friends or eternal enemies, only eternal interests. That's the grown-up talking, the grown-up in the room, as they said, incredibly, of Joe Biden just before he took office. It's great to have the grown-ups back in the room. Yeah, that's the guy, the guy confusing the New, think The guy who thinks the black and tans are a New Zealand rugby team is the grown-up in the room. Uh, it doesn't matter here whether you wish America's 1950 moment to extend to the end of this century. Uh, 
people who are well disposed to the Americans have concluded that America is not serious about maintaining its global preeminence. And so whether you want to or not, you have to make other arrangements. Alyssa, I, th- I, oh, I think... Uh, I think Ms. Angel has actually put something in the comments about how I'm mispronouncing her name. I think she, am I right in thinking that you like it like Lisa, but with an E on the end? Elisa, Elisa Angel? Uh, I hope so. And my apologies if I've gotten all that uh, wrong. Uh, But Elisa, if that is indeed how she says it, says, what is the end goal of the U.S. government's newly planned ban on TikTok? Is it to expand the government's surveillance on the citizenry under the guise of national security or something else? Well, I was sort of thinking about this. I I don't want to make my sitting at the non-functioning U.S. security gate for 45 minutes on a small rural border post uh, with the province of Quebec, uh, a metaphor for absolutely everything. But I, I'm, I, while I was sitting there, I did have the opportunity to think about things. And it seems to me that actually, when you look at everything that has happened since 9-11, it has always been about, in the guise of seeing off uh, remote foreign enemies. It has always been about, in fact, shrinking the freedoms of Americans. So that's why you get your uh, pumpkin pie uh, confiscated as you fly home for Thanksgiving because uh, it's consistency. It isn't sufficiently dried out and inedible enough to pass muster with the TSA. If it's uh, if it's slightly too uh, too liquid, uh, then you could weaponize that pumpkin pie and take out the plane. Now, obviously, this is all rubbish. It's the theater of national security. You know, Americans shuffling shoeless because one guy, one British subject on an Air France flight, tried to light up his shoes in the days after 9-11, and it was those French passengers Uh, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys, as the Americans say, uh, who had to beat the uh, British guy to a pulp uh, and prevent him lighting up his shoes. And because of that, and as I said, this is very always very odd to me because nowhere else in the West, if you're at uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport, you don't have to take off your shoes. If you're at Heathrow, you don't have to take off your shoes. If you're at Schiphol in Amsterdam, you don't have to take off your shoes. If you're in Australia... You don't have to take off your shoes. So clearly someone has invented a thing that uh, prevents people with incendiary footwear boarding the plane and out of some for some cranky reason, some cranky you can never quite trust the French, as Brian Kilmeade said earlier this week uh, in his Twitter feed, uh, they're declining to share this technology with Americans. But so or the alternative is that... uh, America actually has technology, the same technology as Australia and France and the Netherlands that knows there's no threat from your footwear, but just declines to install it at the airport. The way to, the, the way to bet is that everything now, its principal purpose is to control the civilian population. It's nothing to do with foreigners. It's to do with controlling 
you. And so this ban on TikTok is being presented as some kind of uh, effort to get tough with uh, the Chinese Communist Party, but is realistically an attempt to accelerate state control over the Internet even further than it already is. So, you know, the way things are going to be in two, three, five years time is it's a lot likely the Chinese communists will still have the run of the internet. And uh, similarly, uh, it's a lot more likely that it will be, say, Stein Online or one of your other favorite websites that you're no longer able to find of a morning. That's just the way it is. When you look at it, it's like the, it's the, it's like the COVID uh, stuff, which is basically... Uh, uh, basically the 9-11 TSA model uh, having wiggled free of the airport and now is applied to every other area of life. It's about, well, they don't even really pretend. They're, they're quite up for, I mean, and I'm not even making a particularly American point here, although America will certainly be in the lead of this, but this thing, we're going to talk about it on the show, on the Mark Stein Show next week. Uh, an American, a, a UK government doc, doc, a document on how to uh, how to achieve net zero within the government's designated framework. It involves closing every airport in the United Kingdom except Heathrow, Belfast, and Glasgow by 2030. Now, a couple of years ago, if a guy turned up on the BBC and said, uh, OK, we're going to be closing every airport in the United Kingdom except Heathrow, Belfast and Glasgow, he, he would have been uh, written off as a madman and uh, the producers would have called the men in white coats to drag him away and take him to the funny farm. Now it's presented as entirely normal. And you should be very worried about wherever you live in the Western world, you should be very worried about all of this nonsense because they're serious about it. And the fact that all the main, you know, the fact that it's reported without anybody uh, just painting the guy as ridiculous is a big part of the problem. Uh, let's pause from the hell of the headlines for a brief musical respite. Uh, I received quite a bit of pushback from listeners for not noting uh, Rachmaninoff's sesquicentennial earlier this month. I forget what we were doing instead that day. Was it uh, Easter or our first venture into a classic rock format? which a distressing number of listeners seem to enjoy. Anyway, I always find Rachmaninoff's life a bit sad, which I think is one reason I didn't want to revisit it. He was born into a very aristocratic family in uh, April uh, 1873. Uh, they were supposedly descendants of King Stephen the Great of Moldavia who was quite a big shot in his day. But the Russian Revolution ruined the Rachmaninoffs. They managed to flee, and they eventually made it to New York. But they were broke. And the most lucrative way to support his family was for Sergei to play the piano and to conduct, which meant that for the last quarter century of his life, Rachmaninoff completed just 
half a dozen compositions. Thank you, Comrade Lenin. Thank you, Comrade Stalin. When you're not flooding entire cities and drowning hundreds of recalcitrant residents, you're depriving the world of who knows how many symphonies and rhapsodies. Here is a piece he managed to write a couple of decades before the revolution. Very popular. Uh, How popular? Well, Sinatra sings Rachmaninoff. Full moon and empty arms The moon is there for us to share But where are you a night like this? Could we? a memory and every kiss could start a dream for two full moon and empty arms Tonight I'll use the magic moon to wish upon And next full moon If my one wish comes true My empty arms
Frank Sinatra sings Sergei Rachmaninoff, Full Moon and Empty Arms, arranged and conducted by Axel Stordal and adapted by Buddy Kay and Ted Mossman from the third movement of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2. I love the sincerity and purity of young Frank's voice on that Columbia single. It's a lovely record. Got to number 17 on the Billboard Pop Charts in 1946, just pipping Ray Noble's version, which peaked at hit sound number 18. Sinatra sings Rachmaninoff. Hey, that'd make a great title for an album. Uh, Yeah, but unfortunately we don't have enough tracks. We do, however, have enough for a single. If Full Moon and Empty Arms is the A-side, this is the B-side. Frank, 30 years later, 1976, on stage in Jerusalem. There's something new by a young boy named Eric Carmen. Number one song, I think. When I was young, I never needed anyone. Making love was just for fun. That day is done Living alone I think about the friends I've known But when I dial the telephone Nobody's home Don't want to be all by myself anymore All by myself Don't want to live all by myself anymore Never too sure Sometimes I'm so insecure But love that's distant and obscure Remains the cure All by myself Don't wanna be Don't want to live all by myself anymore.
don't wanna be all by myself anymore. All by myself, don't wanna live all by myself anymore. When I was young, I never needed anyone, and making love was just for fun those days are done that's Eric Carmen an arrangement by Don Costa and beautifully played by Ray Cohen at the piano take a bow Ray bravo for me. Thank you very much. Thank Sinatra much. sings Rachmaninoff again. This time, not the third movement of the piano concerto number two, but the second movement, as cunningly adapted by Eric Carmen. Mr. Carmen wasn't just plagiarizing the long hairs there, he was self plagiarizing too, because the chorus was lifted from a song he'd done with a group called The Raspberries a few years earlier. And as Frank said, it was Ray Cohen at the piano. Unusually, it was usually our late friend uh, Vincente Falcone, Vincent Falcone, doing his best classical piano on the instrumental break. Vinnie was Frank's musical director in the late 70s, early 80s. Most interesting and productive time for Sinatra. Check out our special shows with Vinny talking about Frank. You'll enjoy them. But you can hear Sinatra there trying to infuse Eric Carmen's lyric with more weight and meaning than it can bear. And it doesn't really repay the effort. The best thing to do is just stand there and ululate it, as Celine Dion does, or understatedly ululate it, as Sheryl Crow does. But don't overthink it, as Frank does. So he sang it a few times on the road, as in Jerusalem there, uh, and then figured, nah, I'm doing nothing for the song, and the song does nothing for me. So he never put it down in the recording studio. More Rachmaninoff to come on Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A on this sesquicentennial. It is 19 to 9, British summer time. A little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Let us get back to your questions. Robert Stewart says, The riots in France are reported to be over changes in the social security age. This seems illogical. Those who should be concerned would be in their 50s. And those who should be joyful are those in their 20s. The former get the booty, the latter a tax to pay for it. The few videos that are allowed to be aired covering the events seem to be replete with the younger sort. Are we making the mistake of embracing another false narrative? Could those rioters have more significant issues that are harder to discount? Well, things always start... And the French are very good at uh, protesting in order to get their way. Uh, but you're right to point out that something a little different is going on this time because uh, that's why one reason why Macron is determined to shove this later retirement age uh, down 
French throats, whether all those people in their 50s want it or not. But there is a broader dissatisfaction with Macron uh, and a broader dissatisfaction with the direction of France, particularly among the young. What I find interesting here is that, again, applying uh, American or an Anglo paradigm to the continent doesn't always work because, for example, uh, Marine Le Pen does much better with the young than, say, the Republican Party does. Uh, Generally speaking, as you say, it is the beneficiaries of a very cosseted uh, and restrictive state uh, that support Macron and the uh, establishment parties. But the thing about it is uh, you can have, it's a bit like the way the Gilets, Gilets Jaunes were when they came along. Uh, there's people who are in there for one thing and there's people who are in there for another. And it's, it doesn't even, you know, for example, uh, going back almost 20 years now, when I was opposing the so-called European Constitution and I was rejoicing that it had been voted down by the French and people were sneering. They were going, oh, yeah, so you're Mr. Right-wing small government and you're throwing your lot in with uh, the French who are only voting down the European Constitution because they want to keep all their uh, big French welfare uh, arrangements going without Brussels cutting down. And I said, no, no, no. Uh, you know, you can oppose the European Union because you're a right-wing small government type. Or you can oppose it because you're a left-wing big government type. But in both cases, you want you to have your say over it in the polity where you are, as opposed to having it put beyond government control at the globalist technocrat level. And there are people likewise who basically Macron is a globalist technocrat commissar, uh, the first of many. Uh, who uh, is imposed on a nation state uh, in essence because he represents the globalist technocrat view. And there are left-wing opponents of that and there are right-wing opponents of that. Jamie Marsh says, Hi, Mark. You recently said that you had watched US cable news for the first time in a while and came away relatively unimpressed. It's slim pickings, to put it politely, both on the TV news side and in legacy print media, and unfortunately, the glory days of the blogosphere are far behind us. I wonder if you could share with us any news sites, blogs, podcasts, or any other sources of news and information, aside from Stein Online, of course, that you read or watch regularly that you find particularly interesting and informative. Well, um, when I said I was relatively unimpressed, I really hadn't watched it for a long time. I mean, what, what what's happened to me in recent times is that whenever it was in last autumn, I left uh, New Hampshire to go and do the Mark Stein show from London for a while. And I was uh, just because I don't particularly like weekending in London. It gets me down being there after a bit. Um, I... Uh, took to spending long weekends in uh, the the south of France, which is very pleasant. I like it in the autumn. And unfortunately, I then had uh, my heart attack since I was in the ICU in the south of France. And uh, they didn't let me 
uh, nurses were very protective of me. They didn't like it if they came in and caught me on my laptop looking at American politics because they didn't think following Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy would be good for my health. And they were quite right about that. And then when I left the hospital, I, I had Christmas with my beloved daughter as my nursemaid. And uh, evidently, uh, she'd been given the same instructions. And, and so she wasn't uh, inclined to let me <laughs> check in with what's uh, happening back on the send money now to send money now dot com front uh, with the uh, US Republican Party. And then I wasn't able to and, and then I had was distracted by the bonehead judge in Washington, D.C., whatever that guy's name is, who was actually trying to upgrade Michael Mann's defamation suit into a capital offense and kill me in defiance of my doctor's medical advice. And so I had all that for a while. And then I came back. And so whatever it was, I hadn't seen, you know, Fox News or anything for a, a long time. And it was interesting to me that then when I saw it again, it's suddenly like you've never been away. It's like you've never been away. You know, when when was the red wave? That was November the 7th or something like that. And uh, it's barely washed over the fruited plain, the non-existent red wave, before everybody's like back doing this analysis was, oh, everybody's totally dissatisfied with Joe Biden. There's going to be a red wave like you've never seen in 2024, blah, 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 blah. And... Uh, I I simply don't I don't buy that because I think uh, the difference between I mean a lot of countries are failing in the West, but the difference is that the United States is corrupt on a level that it would be inconceivable in Norway, just stinkingly corrupt. The amount of money you make from going into American politics, you know, you go in poor and you come out rich. That is a familiar pattern and no one can tell you how it happens. Uh, but Joe, it's happened to Joe Biden. You look at his property portfolio, there is no rational way that can be explained uh, by a senator's salary. So it's stinkingly corrupt. And I, I find too, and and I find, what did I say about uh, Mark Levin or whoever it was I was talking about earlier? The parochialism? Yeah, there's a place for talking about American exceptionalism in an historical con uh, context, but not now, not when you're going over the cliff. Um, and what we're seeing, I mean, for example, how many listeners to American talk radio uh, know about these movements within the, the BRICS alliance, which is um, exemplified by this uh, Brazilian guy in Shanghai talking about, you know, he just doesn't get why they still have to pay any heed to the American dollar. There are moves afoot out there. And the parochialism, the, the parochialism doesn't help. I mentioned on uh, yesterday's replay of uh, an interview I did with Jordan Peterson some years ago, I mentioned at the end that 
Mark Levin's take on that. It's entered as not talking out of turn because CRTV entered it as evidence against me in their courtroom filings, where Mark Levin said that, uh, in fact, the, the, uh, either the chairman or the president, whatever he is of CRTV, testified against them in the second trial, that this foreign stuff is of no uh, interest to Americans. So Mark Levin thought this guy, oh, Stein's talking to some obscure professor from Toronto. This is of no interest to anyone. Uh, we're all going off the cliff, and the arguments about American exceptionalism look a lot less exceptional when you're lying at the bottom of the bloody cliff with everybody else. Uh, okay, let's pick through all the rubble at the uh, Norway, uh, Greece, uh, Belgium. No, no, no. Oh, now here, who's here? Oh, yes, this is the biggest dead body at the bottom of the cliff. That's totally exceptional. You know, at a certain point, people have to get real. People have to get real. And I, I, that's what annoys me about, and that's why I don't find it productive. Now, I like, I have a lot of friends who do these shows, and I like to hear them. Brian Kilmeade, for example, <clears throat> was actually very good on Biden's awful visit to Ireland, north and south, and... Uh, I thought rather, I thought rather on the money about it. I thought it was very good on the radio, uh, and likewise, I always love listening to Howie Carr uh, on the radio in the afternoons because he's funny about it all, and there's a plonking earnestness uh, to a lot of these shows uh, that I don't find. Uh, terribly agreeable. And obviously, I like uh, my friend Snurdly and his drive time show on WABC in New York. I love being on it and I love listening to it. And then other than that, it's like the people I checked in with in the heyday of the Internet when people didn't have platforms, they had their own sites. And the people who still have their own sites uh, like Glenn Reynolds, the Instapundit, all the uh, Powerline guys. The Powerline guys are far less crazy extremist than I am, and precisely for that reason, I like getting their take on things. But on the other hand, and, and by that I mean they're sin they sincerely hold the positions they do. So it's not like they're, they're part of the send money now to sendmoneynow.com crowd. So I, I like them and I like uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Insta Pundit. And I like I have a thing where, you know, I like, as I said, I like the people I used to read or way back at the beginning of the Internet, like Kate McMillan at Small Dead Animals in the Dominion of Canada and Joe Nova in Australia and all and all kinds of other places. But the whole, you know, the sports bro approach to partisan politics, I find just a complete waste of time because uh, it's not a sports team in the end. It's it's uh, it's what what happens. I come back again always to that Milton Friedman line, how it's not about 
waiting for the right people to come along and then electing the right people to do the right things. You have to create the conditions whereby the wrong people are forced to do the right things. These guys are sleep, particularly at the Western level. You know, there are some people, I assume, who are ideologically committed to Chinese dominance of the world. And then there are a lot of people who are just in it for the money and the drugs and the hookers. I don't know, you know, it might be that Hunter Biden is ideologically in favor of Chinese dominance of the planet. Um, and he's just posing as someone who's in it for the drugs and hookers and money. But the fact is that particularly in America, particularly in a world of full time politics, particularly in a system of fixed elections where you spend basically two years running for president on your biography, the likelihood is most of those biographies are going to be phony for one reason or another. And I just don't I don't want to talk about. I find all these people repellent close up. And that's not true. Uh, there's some of them who aren't. But I mean, compared to just, uh, you know, strolling with uh, Australian or cabinet, Canadian cabinet ministers during town after a convivial, through the town after a convivial dinner. Uh, and they're kind enough to just walk me back uh, to my hotel for uh, a, a late night snifter or whatever. Um, the American, the American system of big politicians, big entourages, I put it this way in the specky after an Australian tour, uh, when um, a former staffer, I introduced a former staffer of a New Hampshire senator to uh, Julie Bishop, who was uh, then the uh, deputy uh, leader of the Australian Liberal Party, deputy to the prime minister and uh, also foreign minister and trade minister and uh, I said, how many staffers do you have? And Julie, wearing all her hats, said six. And the <laughs> and the staffer for, which I'm trying to remember, uh, Senator Sununu, John Sununu, Republican senator from New Hampshire. How many staffers did he have? Well, he had over 60. You can't have... You can't have small government with big entourages. At some point, at some point, you have to stop talking about the constitution and look at yourself in the great stream of global history. As I said, America has a 1950 moment. In this scheme of planetary history, that isn't going to be a footnote. It isn't. So, uh, so actually not talk, doing this ping-pong, partisan ping-pong of I like my sports team better than your sports team isn't up to what is happening at the moment. Just isn't up to it. Particularly, and that's even before you get to the fact that people like Mitch McConnell are fundamentally corrupt. Oh, yeah, the, the, uh, a nation of 300 million people is so short of talent that his missus has to be a cabinet secretary under both, uh, under both Trump and Bush. What's that about? What's that about? Uh, Johnny B writes to us, uh, says, Hi, Mark. Thanks for another great week of Stein Online Productions. I'm an admirer of Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhenney's anti-abortion work and all credit to them for that. I was therefore somewhat saddened that Phelan, by his own admission, is not a unionist. 
Coupled with his remark that unionism has no friends, that logically means that he is not a friend of unionism. I wonder who his friends are in Irish politics, since all the main political parties, apart from the unionists, are rabidly pro-abortion. However, I cheered up considerably upon reflecting who my lack of friends must inter alia consist of. Joe Biden. Undoubtedly a hater of the UK in general and unionists in particular. We were talking about that earlier. Uh, There's that uh, fabulous little clip after he was proclaimed president by whoever it was who did it. And a BBC reporter shouts at him and says, uh, uh, Mr. President, do you have a word for the BBC? And Joe Biden uh, turns around and just goes, I'm Irish. (laughs) walks off. Yes, indeed. The EU, just look at their behaviour in the last few years, continues Johnny B. The current political class in the Republic of Ireland, apparently. I assume that Trudeau and Ardern and their ilk aren't our friends. I certainly hope they aren't. Would any sane person train any of the above for the friendship of Mark Stein? I think not. Best wishes, John. I don't actually think, uh, you know, to, to, in, in fairness to Phelan, uh, as I said to him, he said, oh, you can tell by my name. Uh, I think he was just referring to the fact that McAleer is, you know, obviously puts him on the Catholic side of the tribal divide. But I, as I endeavoured to position him, he's actually a rather fair-minded observer. And I don't want to be telling tales out of school. Um, But Ad is far more militantly uh, Irish nationalist, I would say, than than Phelim is. And I remember uh, Anne uh, bitterly bemoaning her childhood memories in Dublin, where nothing happened on Christmas Day until her mum had watched the Queen's Christmas broadcast. And I remember Anne uh, being... Uh, I, I, I mentioned her casually when I was in Ulster a couple of years back with my darling daughter, and entirely for non-political reasons. Um, we went to... Well, actually, it was for a sort of... Um, a prisoner of Windsor reason, actually, because I, at one point I'd been thinking of having a scene uh, set at uh, Hillsborough Castle, which is the seat of British power in Northern Ireland and indeed the king's official residence in Northern Ireland because the nice little lady uh, who showed us around showed, uh, showed us into the throne room where he, the king presides in majesty. Hillsborough Castle. I wasn't there for any kind of political thing. I was just there. I had like a little idea for a scene that didn't actually make it into the uh, prisoner of Windsor in the end. Because I was thinking of having, you know, I was thinking, well, we'll have something Scottish. We'll have something Northern Irish. We'll have something Welsh. And uh, in the end, I thought, oh, this is all going to get out of hand. And uh, it's not what Anthony Hope did in Prisoner of Zender, where he can find all the action just to Strelsau and Zender. So my little Hillsborough Castle scene never made it into the book. But my daughter and I had a very pleasant time at Hillsborough Castle being shown around by a nice little old lady of the kind you would see in a New Hampshire historical society or whatever. And... 
When I mentioned to Anne that I'd been to Hillsborough Castle, she wasn't happy about it because even though, you know, we were just there for entirely other reasons, she thought I was there uh, uh, because it was the seat of British power in Ireland. Um, and so I would say, and Phelim is always, and we were just having, I can't remember where, oh, wait, that's right, we were at Ann and Phelim's house in California. We were just like having a, a drink uh, on the patio, on the terrace, uh, around the table. And uh, and so Phelim then starts uh, winding her Anne up. I shouldn't really be telling tales out of school like this. She said, well, what do you have to except is that post-1922 Ireland is a failed state. And whatever. <laughs> so I would say Phelim actually is, I, there's subtle, well, not so subtle, as, as Phelim said on our show uh, just a couple of weeks ago, any, any fair-minded uh, northern Catholic will recognize that he is far more in common with northern Protestants than he does with southern Catholics. So I I like Phelan because he's kind of quite a fair-minded observer. And in fact, he was going to be, we were going to do a show uh, from Port Stewart at one point last year. And Phelan was happy to uh, come to that, even though, you know, that's, uh, you know, Protestant central. And But he was, he's, not, he's a fair-minded guy on that sort of thing. The, but the point here is Phelan isn't going to cost you your country, Johnny B., uh, whereas uh, Rishi Sunak and the uh, and Ursula von der Leyen and Michel Barnier and all these other sinister Eurocrats are going to cost you your country. And in fact, right now they're costing Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England their country. But uh, that's, yeah, that's a... Um, I, I think back at that, that visit to Hillsborough, actually... Um, it was a very happy, actually a very happy visit, and my daughter and I uh, enjoyed it tremendously, and we were treated very well. And uh, my daughter was enjoying herself so much, I had to rebuke her for, at one point, thinking she could go and sit on the throne in the throne room. Robert Fox says, hey, Mark. You've mentioned more than once about how the Islamic terrorists on holiday at Gitmo, following their participation in the murder of more than 3,000 victims on 9-11, were treated in a respectful and dignified manner when it came to accommodating their religious practices. Recently, we learned that Walter Reed Hospital, which treats women and men serving in our armed forces, cancelled its contract during Holy Week with a Catholic order to provide pastoral care to their Catholic patients. How can this country survive with some glaring evil running our military? Well, you are quite right, Robert. Um, and I took it up with whoever he was, the head honcho at Gitmo, when I went there, because he showed me with pride these surgical masks. You know, the masks we've all had to wear the last three years, by the way. <laughs> if if you're an Islamic terrorist, if you're one of the jihad boys, if you're one of the Allahu Akbar set, you don't have to wear the face masks because instead the face masks are hung up on a peg in your cell and used to hold the Quran they provide for you uh, in order uh, to demonstrate that the filthy infidel hands of the U.S. military have not touched your Quran because the 
uh, believers, the jihad guys, Muslims in general, believe that infidels are unclean. And I said to the head honcho at Gitmo, I said, wait a minute, I understand if you're Muslim, you believe that infidels are unclean, but why is it in our interest as infidels to confirm that and act in accordance with it? And like many uh, people at the highest ranks in the U.S. military, he had no answer for that. Now we have the opposite thing, which is that if your Catholics providing pastoral care to Catholics at Walter Reed Hospital, uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, We don't need to kiss up to you. We have to kiss up to the Muslims because they go bananas over everything. But we don't have to kiss up to you Catholics, so we're going to treat you like garbage. Yeah. The Pentagon, just, just to come back to it, what it's about really is that America's way of war doesn't work. It has a wholly corrupted... Uh, general staff from right at the top to down to the middle ranks that really should be cleared out. It's failed. Now, that's true of a lot of countries at a lot of different points in history. I mean, it happened that you can, you know, you can read examples of people who got moved sideways in the uh, British military. Oh, yeah, he's not really... I don't know whether we want this guy being in on the invasion of Normandy, so let's uh, transfer him uh, to some mostly ceremonial post up country in India, uh, and he's not going to be an issue anymore. I'm not asking for people to go to jail. But, you know, when... I look at what happened in Afghanistan, which was an American humiliation, as Lord Carrington said of uh, the Argentine invasion of the Falklands, that was a British humiliation for which someone had to take responsibility, and he chose to. But all these talentless, woke wankers on the chiefs of staff are all still there, like thoroughly modern Millie. I think it's very, and it's, again, we go back to the, again, we go back to the whole Ukraine war thing, which seems an obvious boondoggle uh, and and intended merely to, uh, now that unfortunately Afghanistan has come to an end, uh, intended mainly to be another cash cow for the military uh, industrial uh, complex. Joe Patterson writes, your thoughts on the Minneapolis City Council voting to amend the city's noise ordinance that allows the Muslim call to prayer to be broadcast five times a day year round. This is another example of stealth jihad. I can't imagine any city allowing a Christian church to play church bells, broadcast a prayer or hymn at sunrise every day, much less five times a day. With our attentions being drawn in so many directions, it is easy to forget that this barbaric ideology is quietly working to achieve their goals. Well, it comes back to um, what is uh, a, a key part of resurgent Islam, their determination to control the public space. They're quite upfront about that. It's important to them because it shows that they're the coming coming guys. So it's it's important for them to establish dominance of the public space like that. 
And people are fools because they don't they think it's about being nice to a minority. The so-called minority is going to be controlling you very soon, sooner than you think. But it takes a while. I mean, most people in America, they think about, oh, Minnesota. Oh, isn't that uh, the sex fiend, uh, the now disgraced sex fiend Garrison Keillor and all his wonderful, cute little Lake Wobegon stories about where all the the children are above average? Uh, No, no. That cliché no longer applies. Minneapolis is a completely different kind of place. And the Muslim community, whether it's, you know, I'm not talking about jihadists here, uh, although it helps, you know, as you see, as we mentioned in Gitmo, even if you're all about blowing people up, the infidel is still willing to accommodate you and grovel to you. There is nothing in the Geneva Conventions that says you have to accept the characterization of, uh, by Islam of unclean infidels, that was volunteered by Uncle Sam. And then we see this among the non-jihadist community. Nevertheless, it's about controlling uh, the public space. Um, there's a... <laughs> uh, um, Let's see what we got for one. Uh, uh, what have we got for a last question here that is a little less unjolly? Uh, I like the, what's the, who's this question? I don't know who this question is from. Will I pay my taxes this year? Do I write my check to the IRS or to Zelensky? Uh, I think you have to write it to the United States Treasury, actually. <laughs> uh, that's my memory of it. Um, but... The, the the central point is quite right. I mean, there is just nobody knows. This is what America loves or um, the, 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 the corruptocrats who run American government. What's the way to spend money where nobody goes? Let's just say that Joe Biden was the guy who blew up the uh, Nord Stream pipe, pipeline in the Baltic. Now, what's the best way to do that? Is it to get a U.S. agency uh, and provide a budget for them to go and blow up the the Nord Stream pipeline or to sluice it through Kiev and uh, basically get it lost in the vast great sucking maw of the uh, of of the Ukraine war budget. I have no idea what they would do with the billions and billions and billions they've been given. When I was in Ukraine, uh, staying in uh, actually a pretty nice hotel, it was seven euros a night, seven euros a night. And that included breakfast and dinner. It didn't include lunch, you know, and there were people there who were like annoyed <laughs> because it didn't include lunch. You didn't get a, a bed, you didn't get breakfast, you didn't get dinner, and you didn't get lunch for seven euros. You had to forego the lunch. So I, I pulled out of my pocket a 10-euro note, and everyone treated me like a big shot. Um, I have no idea what the bazillions of dollars, the billions and billions and billions that have been sunk into Ukraine have been plausibly spent on. And that's how America likes it, because it's uh, it's corrupt. And uh, 
That is true. It's interesting as you... Now, I don't quite know. What, what, what are we... It's the April the 15th is tax day because that's on a Saturday. And then Monday is some uh, public holiday in the District of Columbia. So I don't think your taxes are due till Tuesday. But it is worth bearing in mind uh, whether you would, in fact, be better uh, just wiring it direct to Zelensky in Kiev. A little bit of music to close. We've been marking Rachmaninoff's 150th birthday with Full Moon and Empty Arms, adapted by Buddy Kay and Ted Mossman from Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. You know, uh, when Sinatra records a song, it ensures... I use the present tense because it still ensures uh, that it will be recorded by others. And so even a very minor hit, such as Full Moon and Empty Arms, has been recorded by Nelson Eddy, Robert Goulet, Eddie Fisher, Katerina Valenti, Sarah Vaughan, The Platters, and some 70 years after Frank's single at Columbia Records, Columbia put out a new version by one of their other artists. And so, to celebrate Sergei's sesquicentennial, Dylan sings Rachmaninoff. Full moon and empty arms The moon is there for us to share But where are you? A night like this Could weave a memory And every kiss Could start a dream for two Full moon and empty eyes Tonight I'll use the magic moon To wish upon And next full moon If my one wish comes true My empty arms will be filled Tonight 
that I use the magic moon to wish upon and next full moon if my one wish comes true my empty arms will be filled with you Bob Dylan sings Sergei Rachmaninoff, Full Moon and Empty Arms, musical adaptation by Ted Mossman and Buddy Kay. You know, Mossman and Kay are never going to be famous, guys, never going to be household names like Dylan or even Rachmaninoff, uh, but they had their moments. They turned Chopin's Polonaise Heroique into Till the End of Time, which was an even bigger hit than Full Moon and Empty Arms. And Buddy Kay wrote, A, you're adorable, B, you're so beautiful. And uh, also Speedy Gonzalez for Pat Boone and the theme song for I Dream of Genie. So if anybody ever asks you what the connection is between Barbara Eden and Bob Dylan... That's it. Uh, A couple of months after he released that record, Bob Dylan was honoured with the Music Cares Person of the Year Award, and he gave a wonderful rambling speech full of dues paying to chaps like John Hammond and an awful lot of score settling for all kinds of uh, people. But he also found time to name-check Buddy Kay, co-author of Full Moon and Empty Arms, Dylan noted that when you make a standards album, the reviewers mention the names of the songwriters. Quote, Well, that's okay with me. After all, they're great songwriters and these are standards. I've seen the reviews come in and they'll mention all the songwriters in half the review as if everybody knows them. Nobody's heard of them, not in this time anyway. Buddy Kay, Cy Coleman, Carolyn Lee, to name a few. But you know, I'm glad they mentioned their names and you know what? I'm glad they got their names in the press. It might have taken some time to do it, but they're finally there. I can only wonder why it took so long. My only regret is that they're not here to see it. Bob Dylan tips his hat to Buddy Kay from one songwriter to another. Stick with Stein Online this weekend, Rick McGuinness on the movie beat, Tal Backman on the Backman beat, and then next week uh, I'll be on the book plug beat because it's the official launch of uh, my uh, whimsical satire, The Prisoner of Windsor. Uh, out just in time for the coronation. You can get an autographed copy at the Stein Online Bookstore or you can get a rare unautographed copy at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. That's an allusion to an old Geoffrey Archer joke. Uh, Unsold copies of books can't be returned by the bookstore if they're signed. So dear old Geoffrey 
used to sneak into Waterstones and Hatchards with a ballpoint pen and cruise the shelves and surreptitiously autograph every single copy of his books. Hey, I know what you're saying. Come on, Stein. Sinatra does Rachmaninoff. Dylan does Rachmaninoff. OK, here's Rachmaninoff doing Rachmaninoff. Sergei himself at the keyboard, rabbing up all by myself, full moon and empty arms. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. 
All rights reserved.